Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, I hope you're not all feeling as worse for air as I am. Uh, after the England match, might have slightly overdone it, just showing my patriotic commitment so no one can smear me for that anymore. Uh, it's been a long week. I mean, that I, I think I now say that every week, and I think it's it's pretty a pretty apt description uh, of the times in which we live. Today we're focusing on Labour. I am bored, actually, about talking about Labour. Um, because I would like to, and I do focus, and it's important to say this, on the government and on the Tories. A little preamble here, actually, because this is a very important show. We've got a lot to discuss. We've got some great guests uh, who are far more interesting than I am. And the reason we have to talk about it is uh, if the opposition don't get their act together, we're going to be stuck with Conservative rule for a very long time. 150,000 people have died in one of the worst handlings of COVID-19 on Earth. Uh, we've had... Uh, Three lockdowns, which were imposed too late. Uh, the economy reopened too quickly without a functioning test and trace system, which was handed to the private sector. And those cronies like Serco, who made an absolute mess of it. We had one of the worst economic consequences as a result on Earth. And the Tories are very considerably ahead in most opinion polls. They're doing very well. As things stand, they are heading for a bigger uh, a better result than what I think we'd all agree from a Labour perspective was a calamity for the left in 2019. So we do have to have this conversation. We obviously spend most of our time on this channel talking about the Tories and the right, but we have to talk about the opposition. Now, what we're going to talk about today, there's a few things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the lessons from Batley and Spen. Now, Labour, which I'm glad about, and I should say this because I get a lot, I've, I find it... Uh, kind of interesting, the different attacks from different angles I get without talking about myself too much because I am bored of hearing about myself. Um, but one of the main criticisms I've always had on the left is that I have a, a, a Labourite perspective. So I've always supported the Labour Party in every national local election in my adult life because of the electoral system and the trade union link. I think it's the only viable vehicle as things stand for political and social change in this country. Uh, now, a lot of the people berating me, claiming that I secretly wanted Labour to lose an election, which I've never done in my entire life, are people who are voting for the Liberal Democrats 18 months ago. I won't name any names, Alastair Campbell. So I think what's important to talk about is that was an important result, both in terms of defeating the Conservatives and the poisonous campaign that was being waged in, in lots of respects by George Galloway, who, as a previous video has underlined, is no lefty, is no friend of, of those with a, prog a progressive disposition. He was voting Tory a few months ago and is a former associate of Nigel Farage uh, himself. What we do have to talk about is the fact that it was only narrowly won with 323 votes. 
And it was one because of a, of a candidate who was an amazing campaigner, Kim Ledbetter, who everyone has praised for her campaigning abilities, her popularity. It was because of a great get out the vote operation by the Labour membership, which is, again, remains excellent. It was to do with the fact that Matt Hancock scandal did cut through uh, on the doorstep. And it is to do with the fact that, as campaigners have spoken about, George Galloway did drive away many of uh, many voters who were angry at the treatment perceived of King of Kim Leadbeater, including by one of the leaders of the anti-LGBT protests in Birmingham, who aggressively heckled her, that they voted for her. But 323. Now, in 2019, I think we'd all agree that was a terrible night for Labour again. Labour won by 3,525. It got 42.7% of the vote. This time round, it got 35.3%, which is the lowest share of the vote that Labour has ever got in that constituency ever, including when it lost the seat previously. In 2017, which is just four years ago, 55.4% of the local electorate voted for the Labour Party with a nearly 9,000 majority. Now, other than Hartlepool, which was a terrible defeat for the Labour Party, uh, which was only the third time in the last 50 years that an opposition party has lost a seat in a by-election to the government, other than Hartlepool and the 2017 defeat in Copeland, that result represents the biggest swing towards a governing party in four decades. So if you look at Hartlepool and Batley and Spen, as things stand, Labour is heading for a worse defeat than it suffered in 2019, with dozens of MPs, Labour MPs, with their seats threatened, including Ed Miliband, including Yvette Cooper, including Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party. Now, what's happened is Keir Starmer stood on a platform which included uh, having the transformative radical policies of the Corbyn era combined with party unity, professionalism and unity. The question is, will he return to that mandate? Because the, as things stand, he hasn't kept to that promise. But also, the promise was clearly to expand Labour's appeal. But as things stand, Labour's appeal is going backwards. Labour isn't winning over new voters, but it's losing voters. And a big part of that electoral coalition, as we saw in Batley and Spen, are Muslim voters. Over three million Muslims are British citizens in this country. And of those British Muslims, 86% voted for the Labour Party in 2019. They are a core vote. They are part of Labour's core vote. They are traditional heartland Labour voters. And yet many are angry and disillusioned with a party they voted for all their life. Why? That's what we need to talk about. And I've got two guests I'm about to introduce. Quick housekeeping as ever. Uh, the documentaries that we've been making, including in Batley Spen, in Hartlepool, and about the COVID profiteers, and about how the government unleashed catastrophe in this country, that's paid for by you. You make these documentaries a brilliant team possible on union wages uh, on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. So all that support keeps the show on the road, including the podcast and all the videos that we do. So thank you so, so much. Right, that's enough for me to kick off with. What I'm now going to do is bring in, I'm very lucky to have two brilliant guests. I've got with me Ali Milani, who is a former, he was the Labour prospective parliamentary candidate in Oxbridge and South Ryslip. He stood against Boris Johnson. Uh, he's a brilliant campaigner and activist. And Hamza Ali Shah, who's a fantastic writer, journalist, who's written for numbers of publications, but wrote a particularly pertinent piece about the alienation of British Muslim voters following the Batley and Spen uh, result. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you for having us, sir. 
Let's start with you, Ali. What, so uh, what we saw, I'll just read out a couple of quotes. In the Mail on Sunday, a, which was, by the way, according to a study by the Muslim Council of Britain, was found to be the most Islamophobic newspaper in the country. And that's quite a high bar you have to go over. Um, a Labour official briefed that rag where hemorrhaging votes among Muslim voters. And the reason for that is what Keir has been doing on anti-Semitism. Nobody really wants to talk about it, but that's the main factor. He challenged Corbyn on it, and there's been a backlash among certain sections of the community. And following the election, a campaign source, and I should say that source was denounced by the deputy leader of the Labour Party, and people denied it was a approved source. But after the result, a campaign source in Batley said, basically, we built a new electoral coalition in six weeks, lost the conservative Muslim vote over gay rights in Palestine, and won back a lot of 2019 Tory voters. This result shows we're reconnecting with the wider electorate again as Labour win the lowest share of the vote batting has been in the history of that seat. I mean, what do you think about that? What do you, when you listen to that, Ali, what, what's your thoughts? Because the narrative that was being built up is that Muslims were not voting for the Labour Party because of homophobia and anti-Semitism in Bali and Sven. I mean, look, it, it, it's, it's a classic Islamophobic trope. Uh, I've heard it for as, as long as I've lived in this country. You know, Muslims are, you know, somehow inherently homophobic, inherently anti-Semitic, inherently uh, anti-feminists. Um, and that's all of the votes that George Galloway won and all the votes that have left Labour from the Muslim community have something to do with that. Um, this idea of a socially conservative or a conservative Muslim vote is utter nonsense. In 2019, Labour stood on one of the most progressive manifestos uh, that included uh, you know, LGBT rights, it included trans rights, it included uh, you know, lots of work around uh, anti-Semitism, all forms of different kind of racism, and Muslims voted for that in, in spades. 86% uh, of the Muslim community voted for Labour uh, in that election. It's the largest, most loyal voter base Labour has anywhere um, in the country. So look, you know, there's some of this commentary coming out about how Labour's building an electoral coalition. What that tells me is, A, either people are lying to themselves and spinning themselves, or B, they're, they're just not very good at what they do. Um, the reality is that Labour cannot win a general election without the Muslim vote. And the, the, some of the analysis around that is just plain racism. Uh, it's just plain Islamophobia. And I tell you what, it's an insult to all of the people who campaigned, all the Muslims particularly, who campaigned in Batley and Spen, uh, who put their times and efforts and, and resources into holding on to the Labour vote. Uh, this will shock people, but many Muslims voted Labour and voted for Kim in Batley and Spen. If they hadn't, that seat would have been lost uh, by the Labour Party. Um, I, I particularly saw it both on the phone and on the ground that towards the end of the campaign, some of Galloway's comments around Uyghur Muslims, some of Galloway's uh, previous positions on Syria and his associations with Farage really caught up to him. So a lot of Muslims, yes, a lot of, you know, we are we are hemorrhaging Muslim votes uh, largely because they've been some of the most loyal voters for us in the country. But a lot of us Muslims also did vote for Kim uh, in the election. But there's no doubt in my mind, and there's no question that there is a crisis Labour has with Muslims in the party and with Muslims voters in general. But some of the commentary, whether it comes from right-wing briefings to the debt mail on Sunday and uh, to the Times, I think that was all the way to the unhinged and weird Paul Mason analysis uh, around Muslim voters being socially conservative and anti-feminist and all those kind of things. 
it's it's one of two things. Either people just have no idea what they're talking about or they're lying to themselves and to the country. Hamza, you wrote a piece about this. You just want to tell us what's your reaction to and, and it should be said, various commentators. And I have to say, some people within the Labour Party have been making these points, making, uh, and I have to say, being in Batley and Spen, when you actually spoke to Labour people who knocked on doors, they said LGBTQ issues wasn't coming up at all. In fact, some of them said the only time it came up was amongst older white voters, incidentally. But Amza, what do you think about this whole narrative, uh, which is essentially saying that Muslim voters are disillusioned for illegitimate rather than legitimate reasons? I think it's, it's striking because um, at the beginning, everyone was saying we have to listen to the voters. That was that was the, the narrative after 2019. We must listen to the voters. And that doesn't mean policing what those voters say. That means if they have concerns, you don't you just follow them you say okay we have to we have to at least consider that and then suddenly it became as soon as the, the vote suddenly swung in labor's favor which by the way it's a it's a wave within majority i mean it's like scoring a goal at six nil and making it six one and celebrating it's it's a very futile victory and suddenly the voters the concerns of these voters were being questioned so they're saying oh why is palestine important why is Kashmir important i mean these are two two international countries or international communities that are systematically oppressed that in itself is a moral duty to to oppose to oppose that oppression let alone the fact that the Labour Party is an internationalist party it's a it's a party which is solidarity human rights etc so the fact that they're talking about oh why did these Muslims why are these important issues these are you have you said you have to listen to the voters these are their concerns it's interesting as well isn't it that I've seen some senior Labour activist campaigners who said, well, we don't want these voters because George Galloway is so abhorrent. The fact they voted for him means they crossed the line. I find that interesting because, well, interesting is one word, because when white voters, white non-Muslim voters vote for the Brexit party or UKIP, then there's a consensus that, well, these are, they have been driven away. They have legitimate concerns. We need to listen to these people. They must not be dismissed at any cost. That is the sneering metropolitan elite, sneering at these voters. They've driven them into their heart. But with Muslim voters, it's the horror. How dare they? We don't need to listen to these people because the person they vote for is a disgrace. Yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially, it's like that. The Like like Ali said, that's a, that's a significant block. Historically, it's all for the Labour Party. I mean, just 2017, 80, 86, 87% voted for them. And they talk about... They talk about, oh, but we don't need them. Muslims make up at least 10% of the vote of the electorate in, I think, uh, 83 parliamentary constituencies. That's 13%. You cannot win an election, not not by alienating that vote. It will be impossible, near and impossible, especially at a time when you're losing support elsewhere. Now, I can understand if Labour were flying, fine. But they're hemorrhaging support from all angles. It's very futile. For those asking about John McDonald, by the way, John, John will be joining us after both Hamza and Ali. Um, Ali, what do you think? What do you think about that? The, uh, you know, uh, you know that that sense that they're that that because they voted for someone who is a, a moral disgrace, but so is Nigel Farage. But Muslim voters aren't treated the same. They're not treated as having legitimate concerns on uh, because and and the the candidate who's a repository of that disillusionment is seen as so beyond the pale that shows it's not legitimate therefore it doesn't need to be engaged in i mean look it's true i think it was sadiq khan who after the election said that the voters were right and that we need to listen to them and it, it's the classic one rule for one group and one rule for another one rule for another you're absolutely right you know when 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 certain 
working class white votes up north voted for Brexit and uh, voted uh, in, in, for different parties in the Labour Party. The, the, the narrative in the Labour Party was we need to win those votes, back. we need to listen to them and we need to get to the heart of their issues. When it was Muslims, they're a bunch of homophobes, anti-Semites and, and uh, anti-feminists. We don't want their vote anyway. Uh, look, that's not only just wrong and insulting and offensive, but it's bad politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just keep coming back to this. It's just a lot of bad politics uh around uh around the labor party but it's also you know it's also wrong just to say that a lot of all like all eight thousand votes that galloway got were muslim votes um a lot of muslims and we're finding this particularly the more research that the labor muslim network does uh on 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 muslim voters a lot of them are just staying at home um they're just not voting and that is a huge problem hamza's absolutely right forget about the 10 percent of seats that uh that 80 something seats that muslims make up in over 20 uh, constituencies around the country, they make up more than 30%, sometimes 50% uh, of, of the votes uh, around the country. So it's just, it's offensive, it's bad politics, but I, I hope that everybody can see the double standards uh, and, and what Muslims have to put up with. I mean, the reality is Muslims can see all of this happening. We can see the comments, we can see the briefings, we can see the commentary, and you know, you can't be surprised that people are leaving or not voting or staying at home when they're when they're talked about in in, in such offensive and uh, offensive manners. Now, some of the things that did turn up on the doorstep, I mean, see, actually, because the Labour Muslim Network did a report, which I think, Ali, you actually were involved directly in. But this report uh, came out last year. It showed m- more than half of Labour's Muslim members don't believe the leadership of the party is able to deal with Islamophobia. say they don't trust the leadership of the Labour Party to tackle Islamophobia effectively. 59% of Muslim members and supporters don't feel well represented by the leadership of the party. And more than one in four have directly experienced Islamophobia within the party. And I suppose what I found when I went to Batley and Spen is a lot of those Muslim voters sounded a lot... I mean, it's not the same because for the reasons we're talking about racism here. But in terms of the sense of grievance, it reminded me of, say, Scottish Labour voters a few years ago, which is the Labour Party just expects us to come out and vote for them come what may. Uh, we're taking for granted and we're going to give them a bloody nose. Um, so what do we say? I mean, I'll, I'll come to you after after Hamza, but Ali, just talk about that report and what it says about how many Muslims feel they're being treated within the Labour Party. Yeah, I mean, I chaired the research team that, that 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 published that report, and it it pained me, man. Like it, the report showed that one in four Muslims in the Labour Party directly experienced Islamophobic abuse in the party. Uh, you know, that's that's a striking uh, figure. One in three have said that they witnessed it, and you've uh, witnessed Islamophobia directly. And you've mentioned all the all the particulars uh, about the confidence in 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 Labour's dealing with Islamophobia, and that is the 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 overarching experience of a lot of Muslims, uh, both in the Labour Party and around the country, and they can see Labour's response uh, to the Islamophobia crisis. I mean, I'll give you my own personal experience. Uh, When I was a candidate, as you mentioned, against Boris Johnson, Owen, we did an event together in Uxbridge, and the night before that event, I'd received uh, an Islamophobic death threat through my letterbox without a postage stamp, so someone had walked to my doorstep and, 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 and... put it through my door and when I reported it to the party I got no response they didn't seem to care that that my life was possibly at risk at this uh, at this event and so this is the experience of a lot of people and and if they can't if they can't relate to the Labour Party uh, you know tackling issues like 
Islamophobia within itself, then how are they going to believe that the Labour Party is going to tackle Islamophobia within British society? And Home Office report, Home Office statistics itself shows that of all the religiously motivated hate crimes in the UK, 50, more than 50% uh, of violent and non-violent uh, attacks uh, happen against Muslims. I mean, the reality is what hurts me most about all of this is the way that people talk, uh, the commentariat and the Labour advisors, as if politics is all a game. Uh, as if these communities are chess pieces that you have to line up and we'll move one aside and we'll create a brand new electoral coalition. Uh, that's not what politics is. Politics is about real life. It's about the experiences of real people. Uh, and these Muslim communities are, are, are hurting, like many other working class white communities up north. You know, these, these two communities aren't at odds with each other. So I think... There are no more alarm bells for the Labour Party as it comes to Muslim communities. We've had that report. We've had a poll with Salvation, the LMN dropped. We now have this by-election result. If Labour wants to hold on to, to one of the most important bricks of its electoral coalition, it needs to act on issues like what we, we found in that Islamophobia report. I'll, I'll end on this. You know, that report showed that 20, you know, one, a quarter of Muslim members in the Labour Party are experiencing direct Islamophobia. And over half of Muslim members of the Labour Party don't trust the party to tackle Islamophobia. My question to you, my question to your viewers, to everyone watching, do you think the response of the Labour Party has been proportionate to the findings of that report? Do you think the response of the Parliamentary Labour Party, the PLP, has been proportionate to finding that one in four of your members is directly experiencing bigotry and racism? The answer to that is clear. And so you can't be shocked that they're not voting for us, they're staying at home or, or, or they're feeling disillusioned. I mean, Hamza, it, was, it struck me actually, Baroness Saeed of Arsi is actually a conservative politician, of course, but she said years ago that Islamophobia had passed the dinner table test in this country. And what's striking about Islamophobia is there are many uh, self-styled progressives who will very, you know, passionately talk about the anti-racist credentials, but who will indulge in Islamophobia. I mean, it is a bigotry and prejudice, which isn't simply confined to the right. I mean, it's true. We've got a prime minister who obviously, in one case, calls a surge in anti-Muslim hate crimes by comparing Muslim women to bank robbers and letterboxes. And we've got a very Islamophobic right-wing press. But that's the point, isn't it? Some within the left don't take it seriously as a form of racism. Yeah. And it never takes much for it to jump out either. I mean, within a few hours of the by-election result, I wake up. I mean, I stayed up all night. So when I woke up, I look at the New Statesman article. I'm thinking, when Paul Mason is what he wrote, I thought, that's, it's bizarre. It's like, why would you... The lesson should have been to treasure those votes, not to push them away further. And I, I think it's, it's worth mentioning as well that all of this Islamophobia comes at a time when Keir Starmer promised zero tolerance on racism. That's that's the issue. I think that's emblematic of wider society. There is seemingly a double standard. I mean, the, the donation from Dave, David Abrahams, the pulling out of the, the Ramadan event, uh, the, the, t the tepid statements on Palestine. All of this comes just months after he expelled Corbyn. And I'm not just making this about Corbyn, but when he expelled on the base of zero tolerance for racism. It's, it doesn't make sense. Um, in terms of the, I mean, what came up on the doorstep, it was quite striking, was people talking about Palestine, uh, about Kashmir, and what happened not long after Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party is... Uh, Labour seemed to backtrack, essentially, on support for Kashmiri national self-determination. Kashmir is on the receiving end, of course, of a very long and brutal occupation with terrible human rights abuses committed by the state of India. 
Um, and at the time, there was actually an outcry. This was not long after Keir Starmer became leader in the first place. Uh, we've seen, obviously, the offensive against Gaza again during Ramadan and the lacklustre response of the Labour Party, except when they started panicking about Muslim voters abandoning them in Batley and Spen, and then Keir Starmer threw in a question uh, in Prime Minister's questions, which people thought was a bit cynical, and, and on the doorstep in Batley and Spen thought it was cynical as well. Uh, and also, there's but there's other issues, isn't there? I mean, for example, there's an ITFAR which Keir Starmer withdrew from, and this has actually cut through the doorstep because it was allegedly because of a speaker, a Muslim speaker, who supported boycotts against Israel. Those sorts of things, what I got by talk from speaking to Muslim voters in Batley and Spen is just a sense of, you know, a sense, it feels like a sense of contempt. That's, that's how it came across. What do you think, Ali? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, people always talk about these, these international issues, and it's funny because uh, I, I think there's been commentary saying that, that Labour's talking too much about Palestine and then Labour's not talking enough about Palestine. And the reality is, for Muslim communities, uh, uh, a lot of them are first, second, third generation migrants who've, who've, who've come to this, to this country. They have a, not just an emotional connection to uh, uh, you know, international countries, but sometimes famili familial re relations to, to those countries. I, 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 was, I was in a meeting during the uh, escalation of violence um, in Gaza with a Palestinian who had to leave every half an hour to call his family in Gaza to see if they were still alive. And so this, you know, the, 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 the connection to Palestine, to Kashmir, on a lot of issues uh, for Muslim communities is not an abstract one. Uh, it's, it, it's one of, of, of high emotion and, and, and personal relations. I mean, the reality is, I think a, a lot of Muslim communities do feel like Labour has taken their vote for granted. It's that old like sort of Peter Mandelson of where else do they have to go? Uh, mm -hmm. Well, it turns out they can stay at home or they can go elsewhere um, uh, as well. And so, look, the answer for Labour for connecting back with these with these Muslim communities, I think, uh, is, is a pretty easy one. It's not easy to do, but, but, but the path is clear. And, and it's not too dissimilar to to other voters and, and the general voters that we're that we're losing and that is to to make an emotional sincere honest position policy position on a lot of these issues we need to be leading on issues like palestine on issues like kashmir on issues like islamophobia and these voters will 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 come home but as long as people don't know what we stand for uh i mean it, it, it's remarkable Owen. i as a candidate the easiest question i ever got in my life was why are you standing, what do you believe in, and what's your vision? I saw you interview a Labour candidate in Hartlepool, who when you asked him that question, was like a deer in the headlights. That's inexcusable for a Labour party not to know what they stand for. And with Muslim communities, a lot of it is, is about connection to Palestine, is about connections to Kashmir, is about Uyghur Muslims, for example, is about Syria, is about Iraq. Uh, and that's why it's really important for me to say as well, the, the sort of disillusionment amongst Muslim communities for a long time it isn't a new thing. It's not a last 18 months uh, thing. Yes, Keir Starmer has his own particular challenges. Our, our, our polling showed that. There's particular anxieties around his leadership and his actions. But it goes all the way back to the Iraq war, some of these anxieties. It's now bubbling up and coming to the surface because, you know, whether you like it or not, the reality is Jeremy Corbyn was very popular uh, amongst, uh, amongst the Muslim community because of his, his history and campaigning on these issues. So Labour's path to winning these votes back is, 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 is quite clear. My biggest worry and my biggest concern, and I'll end on this, is 
there seems to be this perception that the only way to win back white working class votes in the north particularly is not to seem too friendly to the muslims that somehow these two communities are naturally at odds together that is utter nonsense it is utter utter nonsense because the reality on the ground for most of these communities whether it's me as a uh, as a muslim migrant in this country or a white working my white working class neighbor we all have uh financial uh insecurities we all have to deal with poverty we all have to deal with a housing crisis we all have to deal with an underfunded uh, nhs system we all have to deal with an under uh funded education system so this idea by some political advisors that you have to divide and rule and the only way to win those white working class voters up north uh is is to you know is to distance yourself from muslims it's bad politics it's morally wrong and it's for me pure stupidity hamza i mean what do you think the strategy needs to be because it does seem as though that at least some senior people within the labor party have decided that alienating or allowing large sections of the british muslim vote to become so disillusioned uh, that in this case, they defected en masse, of course, to George Galloway, uh, or many of them did, uh, because I think they really are thinking they don't really have anywhere else to go, because the calculation they're making is whilst in Scotland there is a repository for disillusionment among Scottish Labour voters, the Scottish National Party, and whilst in the so-called Red Wall there was a repository which was UKIP, then the Brexit Party, and that ended up, in some cases, allowing them to take a leap straight to the Conservative Party, but they all say, well, it doesn't matter because who are they going to vote for? I mean, what do you think the, what do you think the strategy is to stop the Labour Party effectively saying, we don't need these voters and they don't have anywhere else to go and we're going to go in, instead focus on white Conservative voters who were trying to win over at the exclusion of our existing Labour Muslim voters? I think a it's a dangerous it's a dangerous approach because we saw just in 2019 with Brexit when you take voters for granted or at least show that you're indifferent to their to their concerns then they will they will leave and the thing which a lot of people forget is Muslims like you said they're not going to vote Conservative they may opt to vote Greens in a in a protest vote maybe the Lib Dems but they're not going to they're not going to win and they're not going to vote Labour now so that that in itself poses a problem in the sense of Muslims make up a significant part of the population, especially the electorate, and yet they'll be politically homeless. But Labour in particular, I think, has a challenge, but I, I don't see them as willing to take that on. I don't see any urgency. I think they've just gone, well, okay, they, they don't, these Muslim voters don't need to be in the party. And it's worth noting as well that Galloway, everybody's seeing this as like an endorsement of Galloway. Labour left the door open and acted surprised that Galloway walked in. I mean, if that was any other candidate, Galloway's almost set a blueprint for the future, if, if people go into areas like London, Yorkshire, Bradford, Lancashire, Midlands, these are highly populated Muslim areas. So if somebody came in with a similar blueprint and said, we want to tackle, we want to win the Muslim vote, we want to show that the Labour Party is taking Muslim vote for granted, and the Labour Party would be wise to look at the election in Batley and say, do you know what, we have a problem here with disillusionment, people feel apathetic, they don't trust the leadership. Like I said, the Labour Muslim Network figures show that. So there is concrete evidence. And it's, it's very... It is alarming, and I think they're trying to give off this air of confidence since the win. They're trying to show, look, Keir Starmer's back because allegedly Labour's coming home. But I think they have a they have a problem on their hands because, as I said, in the wider context, they're hemorrhaging support elsewhere. They're losing votes 
not just the Muslim vote. So to, to compound matters with the Muslim vote, I think they're in serious trouble. Ali, just to wrap up, what do you think, if you had the series of pithy asks for the Labour leadership to urgently deal with this growing crisis of disillusionment amongst lifelong often? And I spoke to the, I spoke, some of those voters said to me, they were very emotional, actually. You know, they were like, I voted for Labour all my life. My parents did, my grandparents did. My family have ever since we first, uh, our, our ancestors first arrived in this country. Uh, and some of them, you know, it's just quite interesting. I keep using this anecdote because it just shows the complexity of voters, but again, it shows the level of disillusionment. I spoke to one guy who was a Labour councillor 2002 to 2014, and he wasn't a lefty. He was saying it all went wrong for Labour when they chose the wrong Miliband because of the unions. Like, that's not a lefty. Uh, but he was campaigning. He was you know, angry about how Jeremy Corbyn was treated, felt that Muslim voices were listened to, I suppose, under the last leadership. I think they felt for the first time there was some sense of recognition. They were an important part of the electoral coalition and had to be listened to. Um, and, uh, yeah, now they're just furious. I mean, it's, it was blind fury speaking to those voters. So what what do you think has to happen now? What, what needs to happen? Look, I, I'm really glad you said that. And, Owen, by the way, I have to thank you and others for a few of you did some really honest takes in Batley and Spen. Your documentary was brilliant because while everybody else was calling us racists and homophobes and uh, uh, and uh, misogynists, you guys actually went and spoke to people and, and, and heard that it is emotional. Oh, I'm a Galloway. No, 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 Ali, it's Alma Galloway, Steve. I know, I've seen because, that. I'm really, I'm really yeah. disappointed in you. Because, you, uh, you went because I did 100... headbutt him repeatedly during an interview. Yeah. So I mean, apparently... I, I, I also saw BBC Newsnight do a piece with him as well, but they didn't get the same flack that you did, which is... Uh, no, but apparently, yeah. So from now on, if I ever, I can't ever, I'm going to scowl all the way through every interview in case people yeah. presume me laughing at someone means I am their biggest supporter. Anyway, carry on, sorry. <laughs> um, look, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you guys did that because what you found, it is it, certainly true, and it's, it's true for me personally, is that it's painful. Uh, I'll mm -hmm. give you an example. For my mum... The difference between a Labour voter, a Labour government, and a Conservative government was homelessness. She became homeless around the the time of 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 the uh, of austerity really hitting hard our communities, and I had to call her from university as she jumped from hostel to hostel. And so she had voted Labour her whole life because she knew the the real life impacts. You know, while some of these uh, blue tick Twitter commentariats are talking about uh, playing games and watching too much West Wing and thinking that's what politics is. Politics for her was 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 real life it was about losing her home and she'd always voted labor because she understood what was at stake and now she's asking me she's she, it's painful for her she's like where do where do i go uh, mm -hmm. i don't think they care about us i don't think they take our issues seriously so it's an extremely painful situation for me the path forward is is is, is, is quite straightforward uh, and again a lot of this will ring true to others not just to the muslim community but outside of that as well for the love of god please labor stop talking to yourselves stop talking in in this technocratic bureaucratic sense of internal labor party factional war stop it because it does nothing to fix the hurt and pain in these communities both in the labor community and beyond i have seen some some comments from plp members talking about changing the leadership rules at conference and how putting the left back in its box is the way is the way to win this election that is utter utter delusions right when these communities are waking up taking their kids to, 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 to school worrying about the food on the table and paying the gas and electricity bills and the struggles and pains of everyday life they couldn't care less about the labor party rule book or about the factional wars going on in the labor party and i say this as someone 
from the left of the Labour Party, right? The, the way to do this is to stop talking to ourselves and stop talking to the country in an emotional, passionate sense. Be passionate and, and clear on your positions on Islamophobia. How are we going to just deal with Islamophobia in this country? Be passionate and clear around issues like Palestine. How are we going to deal with the ongoing crisis in Palestine, uh, whether that's, whether that's uh, ending arms sales uh, to, to the Israeli government or whether that's around boycotts and sanctions uh, and what kind of movement we're going to build on Palestine, how we're going to deal with the ongoing international crisis of Kashmir and Syria uh, uh, and the Uyghur Muslims. Take emotional stances on these issues. Take passionate stances on these issues. For crying out loud, lead on these issues as well as a whole host of other things like education, which Muslims have a stake in, like healthcare, which Muslims have a stake in, and, and, and start to talk to these communities. And, and I guarantee you they will come home because they're, they're begging to come home. You will have spoken mm -hmm. to them, uh, yeah. Owen. They're looking for an, a reason for Labour to give them the reason to vote for them again. So it's, it's, it's not hard. But as long as there's this mentality of there being a conflict between the white working class uh, vote up north and the Muslim communities in Leicester and in Bradford and, and in London, we're never going to get there. So I think there is certainly a route for us to win again. Uh, I have uh, a, a great confidence uh, in the Labour Party because of its membership, quite honestly. Uh, the, you know, I, I've spoken at 25, I think, uh, constituency Labour parties since January, and, and the members on the ground are extraordinary campaigners, extraordinary people, and as long as people think that the Labour Party is those in Westminster and in HQ, uh, I think we will struggle. But those members are, are where I have the greatest hope. So I think to win back this Labour voters, we have to start doing that. Stop talking to ourselves, stop treating politics like it's some tactical game or it's an episode of the West Wing or the House of Cards mm -hmm. and make emotional arguments, lead on issues of policy and set, your, 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 set clear what you want to do in this country. You know, the easiest, like I said earlier, the easiest question for any politician, whether it's leader of the Labour Party, a councillor or a prospective parliamentary candidate is what do you believe in? You have to answer that question. That is the big, big question. Uh, Ali Milani and Hamza Ali Shah, really appreciate both of you taking your time to come speak so thoroughly. And this is a conversation the Labour Party should have been having a very long time ago, and they need a massive kick up the backside. And unfortunately, that's not how many of them have interpreted the battling spend by election. They're too triumphalist, as I've said, about an election result, which at the moment points to Labour facing a even more disastrous result than 2019. Thank you both so, so much uh, for your insights and your wisdom. So thank you. Take care, both of you. Thanks for having us. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack. 
for free shipping and 365 day returns. Uh, so we're going to have John McDonnell at the end of the programme. I'm going to talk to John about what's going on in the Labour Party at the moment, about the direction, about what the left should do. Um, now, John McDonnell, I think, has actually played a very interesting uh, and constructive role. Uh, and I think a lot of people are looking up to him for leadership right now. So it'll be very interesting to talk to him. But another person we all need to be looking up to for leadership is the one, the only Jess Barnard. Hello, hello, hello. The chair of Young Labour. Great to see you. How are you doing? Oh, we can't hear you. You've vanished. Your, your audio is not exactly booming through to us this very how's, second. How's oh, I can hear you now. Yeah, now it's booming. Great. Hi, yeah. I'm glad that happened actually. I was just saying morning and then realised it's not. So that that says a lot about how I'm how I'm doing today. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. It's fair to say I think we're both struggling a little bit. Um, I'm not sure. Is it? It's probably quite obvious uh, in my case. But I did speak to Jess last night. I went in on a birthday Zoom whilst I was a little bit merry on the Kingsland Road. So apologies for that, Jess, because I wasn't. I was even less coherent than this. Four nil. What were we to do? What are you supposed to do about it? Um, me and Ash Sark are currently going viral because we took a picture of ourselves watching the match, and apparently that 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 means we deserve a lot of death threats. Anyway, uh, as per Jess, right? Let's talk about what happened. I think in Batley's but I want to talk firstly with you about another um, angle, I suppose, in terms of the voter coalition because. If we're going to go back to the 2019 election, which I think we all agree was not a good night for the Labour Party, what's striking is the age gap that now exists in, politi in, in political affiliation. So under 25s, 62% uh, voted Labour, only 19% voted Tory. I mean, that is without precedent. In 1983, Margaret Thatcher won the youth vote. I know people always hear me say that, but it's true. Um, so this age gap is a new phenomenon of younger people uh, who have flocked to the Labour Party in unprecedented numbers. What do you think is going on at the moment with, you think, with younger voters who were the most enthusiastic part, I suppose, of the Corbyn coalition, if you want to call it that? Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment for young people, it, it's becoming increasingly clear that the Labour Party is quite deliberately trying to distance itself from being seen as as the the party of young people um kind of you know stepping away from from the you know the, the wave and the crowds of young people that would gather to kind of you know hear jeremy speak and, and follow him around and I, I think it's quite a deliberate and it's really cutting through to young people that you know it's not by accident that they just aren't talking about the issues young people are facing um and particularly over the last couple of months especially that's that's really hit home when you know um the last couple of weeks we're seeing COVID cases absolutely skyrocketing um, in young people and we're seeing the end of the furlough scheme um, and in particular you know students who are having to self-isolate being charged another whole uh, month's rent by landlords even though they don't have the money to do it we, we've seen very little if any commentary from the Labour Party um, about young people when these are basic issues that we should just be able to get on top of and challenge the government on um, so I do think we are running a serious risk of of just isolating young people to the point where you know we we know that if they, if they don't feel that Labour represents them they won't turn out or they will vote green. Um, 
and that's that's definitely the way that we're heading. I'm I'm quite certain if we were to head into an election tomorrow, we would very much struggle to convince young people that they should get out and vote and vote for Labour because right now, what are we offering them? What are, what are we saying for them? So a lot of Labour strategists would say, well, look, the fact is Labour's massive polling deficit is amongst older Britons, and unless Labour manages to recoup some of that ground, then there'll never be a Labour government. Therefore, all the energy has to go and focus on that. I suppose my question there, I mean, I, 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 I'm interested actually what that offers to older people at the moment because it's not actually, I mean, that's that's fine in of itself to say that they need to win over older voters. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. Uh, the question is, how, what's the vision? What's the offer there? Uh, because obviously at the moment, those older voters are not coming back to the Labour Party anyway. But that's what they'll say. We need to focus on that. Younger people generally they're going to stick with us there's i guess there's two things um to touch on here um you know if it is that they they want to focus more on winning those older voters back you know building a broader like age coalition fine absolutely i agree with you it needs to be done um, but that isn't achieved by you know having senior ministers um shadow ministers going and briefing about um how it would be ridiculous for us to be talking about a social care service um and things that are really important to older voters um and of course disabled voters so uh the there really needs to be a rethink in, in you know, how they actually intend to win these votes because it seems like they have the ideas um, of, of the voter coalition that they will build, but absolutely no clue on how to deliver it. Um, and I guess as well, I would encourage Keir and the whole of the leadership team to ask, where the hell do you think young people come from? Um, you know, there's, there's got to be, you know, if there's millions of young people in this country, someone somewhere is a parent um, and and parents really care about, about their children. If, if you've ever campaigned in elections, and I've campaigned in far too many now, um, you will know that this comes up on the doorstep. It comes up when they talk about the fact that their children can't stay in the community because they can't get a house there, because they can't get a job there. There aren't the opportunities. They can't get a place in the school. They really care about these issues. So when you are talking about you know issues facing young people, you're not just gaining their support. You're also gaining the support of the people around them, their families, um, and you know the, the people who care about them and their futures. So. You know, I'd really encourage leadership to to get out on the ground and actually listen to people and be guided by it. And, I, you know, I think Ali mentioned it earlier, um, you know, about talking about about politics again, you know, stop focusing on this this war on the left and focus on being the party for the people. Um, you know, one thing that does really worry me, though, is, is that I think we do have a leadership that just doesn't have that ability right now. Um, I don't think he can talk passionately about politics because I'm not sure that he actually has um, many politics. And to be quite honest, you know, so many people at the top of, of Labour Party for so long have done nothing but, you know, scheme internally and focus on internal um, party political beef and arguments and things um so i really think there needs to be a bit of a reshuffle and a reconnection yeah. at the top of the labor party with communities i'm interested i mean i'll talk to john mcdonald about this shortly as well but what do you think where do you think this is heading in the sense that you know it is clear that elements of the labor right basically their view is they don't think keir starmer is going to win a general election so what they want to do is change the leadership rules 
to stop a left-wing candidate ever being able to get on the leadership ballot uh, again. Um, for example, by reintroducing the Electoral College or increasing the nominations you need from MPs to be able to appear in the ballot paper in the first place. And then they'll dispose of him and put in someone who is more of their own politics, as in someone who's more ideological, I suppose. I mean, what do you, where do you think this is heading? Because, you know, we've seen, obviously, growing disillusionment and frustration, I have to say. I speak to, part of my job is to speak to members of parliament, Labour MPs. I speak to Labour MPs actually across the board. That's my job. I've always done that. And there's a general, everyone agrees there's no vision coming from the Labour Party. That's like, they might, they don't agree what the vision should be. But they, they don't, you know, there is a clear consensus that there is no vision being articulated. But there are factional operators who have a vision for the party. That's their focus. And I mean, how can that be stopped? Do you think that's just inevitable that party democracy is going to be shut down and the Labour right are going to use this period to basically put the left in a box forever? Yeah, they may. But I, I do think there is there is going to come a point where they do push it too far. And I think there's a lot of MPs who you know, don't align with, with you know, the right-wing um, MPs who are still focusing on keeping the left off the ballot and uh, making sure that we never again have, have a chance at, at, um, at power. There are an, a lot of MPs who feel quite uncomfortable with this constant focus um, on how we crush the left. Um, and also, you know, it really does, again, highlight the fact that they don't have any politics and they don't they know that as well, right? So if you have to scheme your way to make sure that you never have um, an opposition that, that people will come out in, in droves and support for and mobilise for, um, the only way you could win is to keep them off the ballot. It's quite telling that they're conceding that after standing a candidate who lied about his politics to appeal to the left. Um, so I think we can take a little bit of uh, like reassurance in our strength uh, from this, as much as it is um, irritating to have to again fight these battles, um, you know, we have to acknowledge that they are actually quite worried about the membership and they recognise that the membership is much further left leaning uh, than the PLP. So, you know, it's really important that we make sure that we mobilise as members. Um, so, you know, when we're electing our delegates, going to our branch meetings, going to our CLP meetings uh, and making sure that that's heard loud and clear because we we need to insist that our party democracy um, is respected and we need to start organising quite seriously around this. What do you think younger people could do, not just in terms of the Labour Party, but there are lots of social movements which exist, housing, climate justice and so on. Do you think those movements can help put a pressure on the Labour Party and the Labour leadership. Because a lot, let's be honest, a lot of younger people now who are, life is short, they just think to themselves, I want to fight for transformative policies. I don't want to waste my life in the Labour Party. I'm sure you don't want them to do, you do want them not to waste their life. I'm sure you do want them to put their energy into doing that, but a lot of them just aren't going to do it. So do you think that does have an impact in terms of you know, those movements growing and that's what younger people can be doing and that does have an impact on the Labour Party. Oh, completely, completely. I've always been um, quite open and honest about the fact, you know, we need to be in 
the Labour Party organising and outside the Labour Party organising. Um, and, you know, that's something that we should have been doing a lot more of um, under, you know, under the Corbyn leadership. Um, a lot of us were so focused on, you know, Labour, Labour organising that that's something that uh, really like fell by the wayside. So now more than ever, you know, especially when the, when the Labour Party is distancing itself from social justice issues, we have to be organising on the ground. Um, and I think that, you know, the role for young people within um, Young Labour, you know, of the left of Young Labour, we need to be making sure we're doing our bit to build up that new generation of young leaders, because in our party, we do have this tendency to kind of look to the, the left of the PLP uh, to, to kind of guide us, to save us. Um, but actually, you know, change is brought about from the ground. Change will be brought about from people building these social movements, mm-hmm. holding the government to account, holding the Labour Party to account. And so we've got to be part of that, making sure that we mobilise in every community and give young people the skills they they need to be able to hold power to account at a time when it is extremely unaccountable. Jess, you've been a superstar. I'll let you work off that hangover. You, did, you look great. You look fine. Much needed. Thank you. I, um... <laughs> I think I'm, much, I'm significantly ropier than you, but you've been an absolute pro. So I'm glad you managed to to integrate both the festivities and being able to turn up and talk to us. So we really, really appreciate it. Lots of love. And I'm sure we'll have a drink IRL at some point. Yeah, definitely soon. Yeah, definitely. All right. Take care. Lovely. Yes, really Thanks for care. having me. Take care. Bye-bye. A huge honor. I say we've, we're so lucky to have such brilliant and insightful guests who can talk through a lot of experience about what's currently going on within the Labour Party, but also within broader communities. And that's very important we talk about that. Our next guest doesn't need an introduction, but I'll do it anyway. John McDonnell is, of course, the Labour MP for Hayes and Harlington, the former Shadow Chancellor. Hey, hey, John, how you doing? Very good to see you. Good. I just want to hear, firstly, I suppose, just your response to battling spend. And obviously, across the Labour Party, people were delighted that Kim led me to one. But I suppose there's a danger that the triumphalism that is currently being heard eclipses the fact that if you look at that result and the swing towards the Conservatives, that Labour, as well as you look at Hartlepool by-election, in which obviously Labour lost very badly, that the Labour Party is heading for a very bad defeat. And it's not just failing to gain over new voters, which is what Keir Starmer promised. It's alienating existing members of its electoral coalition. He's stuck with it in 2019 what do you think um i wrote a bit on um friday about this just first reactions i think the first collective reaction across the movement should be and i think it is for most people just heavy sigh of relief a huge sigh of relief because not only would have been a setback for the whole of the labor party it would have been a i think a huge setback for Batley and Spen in the whole country, to be honest, if the Tories had won in Batley and Spen um, as a result of the nature of the campaign that went on there, which was appalling, really. So I think, first of all, a sigh of relief. If if there is any triumphalism, I just think people aren't living in the real world. And I don't say that as a, an attack on anyone. I just, just people have got to have a a bit of objectivity about all this, you know, the, the nature of the seat and to have that small majority. And, you know, I, you have to pay tribute to Kim Ledbetter, you know, for the, the courage she had in putting up with what she did. But 
I think it was, and there was a good mobilization, there's no doubt about that. People poured in, party members poured in from all over to get that vote out. And I think the Hancock scandal did did help us a bit and the very low-key Tory campaign. But if anyone thinks there's, you know, this is somehow something to celebrate as a huge victory, I think they're just deluding themselves. We've got to have a serious, a serious think about where we go next. And that actually that should bring out the best in people it shouldn't we it shouldn't bring out sort of personalized or sectarian attacks i think this should bring out the best of the party where we actually do recognize that we're on the edge of another precipice if we're not careful of uh, a tory government that is well i don't think we've ever seen this level of corruption in any government before in this country that's the first thing and the second thing is people should not underestimate what is about to be inflicted upon us. It's not just another round of austerity. The health bill that they're bringing forward will mean that actually this is this is the biggest threat to the NHS we've seen since its existence. This is a huge potential privatisation of the NHS. It's laying the foundation stones for that. And then on top of that, you lay the police and crime bill, um, which effectively could undermine the ability of people just to basically protest against such measures like that. And then if you look at what's happening in terms of the practices that are going on within the economy, fire and rehire, which is, again, almost a step back to the 1930s in terms of the way work workers were treated by their employers. I think we're on a, we've got a huge huge battle to face you know i don't like all these military illusions but i can't think of anything else to say so therefore what we should be doing now as a party a whole party it's not down to any individuals it's down to everybody as a movement as a party we've got to have an objective assessment of where we at and then develop a strategy which is both immediate but serious as well in terms of laying some long-term long-term foundation stones for the movement in the future so uh, if there's any form of triumphalism, I think people are just not living on the same planet as the rest of us. Before I ask you about the, you've written a piece for the eye, which sets out five lessons that Keir Starmer needs to take from the by-election. We had earlier on uh, two guests, but one, you know, well, Ali Milani, you know, you, you've known him for many years and you've worked with him. Um, and we discussed the huge disillusionment that exists amongst Muslim voters 86% of who voted for Labour Party in 2019. Some voted for Labour all their life. And what we've seen since the by-election, we already had briefings suggested Muslim voters were driven by anti-Semitism and homophobia in their disillusionment. But it was a campaign source said that Labour basically built a new electoral coalition in six weeks, lost the Conservative Muslim vote over gay rights in Palestine and won back a, load, a lot of 2019 Tory voters. This result shows we're reconnecting with the wider electorate again, again, to emphasise the lowest share of the vote Labour's ever got in Batley and in the history of that seat. But what's that? I mean, by the way, Labour campaigners, I said this earlier, everyone, a consensus was no one was talking about LGBTQ issues on the doorstep. What does that say about the modern Labour Party and its attitude to Muslim voters who are already angry and disillusioned with a party they see as their own? Ali Milani is one of my local councillors in, in Hayes and Harlington. And the reason I say that is because often people will come onto programmes and comment. Um, and 
um, I respect people who do the routine work as well. And what I like about Ali and why he's become a good comrade and friend is because he's not just articulate, he's not just a good campaigner, but he does the routine work as well as a local councillor. And that that gives you a base within a wider community as well. Um, and so people like Ali need to be listened to. And the Muslim network is, I think, one of the most refreshing things that we've had in recent years in, in the party. And their survey, it came as a bit of a shock to me, to be honest, about because I have a large, I have a large Muslim population. My my constituent, well, you know it, and you've been down here campaigning enough times. It's a large multicultural community, and I love it. You know, we rub a get together along very well because we work together so much. And I don't think people in the party completely understand what Ali and others have been saying about the level of disaffection that there is within the Muslim community. Now, there are debates in every community about issues we agree with and disagree with, and you have to take them on. You know, I come from an Irish Catholic background. We had to, we had to have that debate about abortion and the woman's right to choose, and we had to have that debate. And on a whole range of issues, that's what's happening in a whole range of different communities. And I actually, and that's a positive role the Labour Party plays, you know, on on issues of progressive, particular civil liberties, human rights, that sort of thing. Our party is meant to raise those issues and do it in a way where you convince people, you bring them with you, and sometimes that's tough. Sometimes you have to be hard in those debates as well, and that's what we've had to be in in a whole range of issues like that. But then when you get sort of comments that don't further debate but actually set it backwards i just i don't know where people are i really don't and it it reflects to me that actually there are some and they might be decision makers within our party at the moment or advisors within our party at the moment i don't think that fully understand what's going on the ground and haven't really spoken to the community itself so i i sometimes you can get very angry about about this, but some of the comments I've heard about, as you say, this building of a coalition uh, from the Batley and Spend campaign, that isn't what I'm getting on the ground. What I'm getting from my local Muslim community is actually one of the biggest issues that they've they've t taken to their heart, understandably, is Palestine. And where we had, I don't, I was trying to find out the truth of this, where we had one constituency party told, for example, that they couldn't even discuss BDS, you know, boycott, disinvestment and sanctions, a policy I support. And actually a majority of Labour Party members from these polling support it. Whether you tell you can't even discuss it, what sort of message that that send out to Muslim, well, people, not just the Muslim community, but in other communities as well, that this is so central to their, well, their belief of how to tackle injustice. And then you're not allowed to discuss it. I just extraordinary. There's issues like that, and this issue that was has been raised with me from the local Muslim community about um, Kia when he left the iftar. But uh, again, because there was someone, one of the organisers was a BDS supporter. Can you imagine that sort of message? How, the impact it's had on, and this it isn't this interesting. This is on the wider community. I'm talking about people who in my local mosque are senior members of that mosque. We're not just talking about young people. We're not talking about hotheads either. We're talking about serious people.
people who understand the feelings within their community. So I think there's a lot of work that's got to be done about understanding. I thought we, I honestly thought we'd got there, but this reveals we clearly hadn't. And Ali Milani and the Muslim Network Survey demonstrate just what people feel about it, you know, and the fact that there's a belief we haven't dealt with Islamophobia properly. Uh, again, all these issues have got to be addressed now. And again, that's why, you know, anyone who's trying for this about battling has been completely misinterpreted it. I think congratulate Kim Ledbeta and tell her what a fantastic work, role she's played and the, what a good MP she'll be within that community and let her get on with that work now and settle that community. But let's have a proper objective discussion about where we're at electorally. But that then does link to where we're at ideologically and where we're at in terms of the development of policies as well. What you said in your uh, very important piece, and people do, I hope everyone who's watching or listening looks up the five lessons Keir Starmer can learn after Labour's battling and spent by-election win, which John penned for the eye, is that uh, you say you're the leader of the opposition against the most corrupt government and line prime minister this government has ever had. For God's sake, show some anger. You also say stop painting and fast the vision of society you want us all to create and show how it can be done with a short, sharp set of policies. And I suppose that really gets to the heart of what a lot of the critique of the current leadership uh, where a lot of the critique is, which is, A, they've allowed the government to get away with one of the worst handlings of the pandemic on Earth, which has killed 150,000 people, one of the worst death tolls on the planet, with terrible economic consequences as well. And secondly, that they don't have a vision. And if I speak to Labour MPs, which I do across the political spectrum, there is a consensus that the current Labour leadership does not have any vision whatsoever of what it seeks to do with yeah. political power with a big question mark about whether it's actually capable of doing it? Hi, I was on the march yesterday. Um, I spoke at the march in London on the NHS and uh, we were outside Downing Street protesting. It was a good turnout. Some of the speeches were so moving. Um, some of the NHS workers themselves and the, the feeling I got is that they were campaigning so hard, but also the, what the message they were getting across is what they've been through over the last 12 months, the pressures that they're still under and the heartbreaking experiences that they've had. And what, you know, a lot of them were very young workers. You know, we, you talked about 21, 22, 23, 24 year olds. Um, the experience of being the last person that someone will ever hold a hand of, you know, they were sitting next to people as they were dying, trying to comfort them. It's just, and the, the hours they've worked is just phenomenal, really. And then to have, you know, the, it wasn't just about Hancock. I couldn't care less who Hancock was screwing, to be honest. It was the thing that got to them was Johnson has been responsible for tens of thousands of deaths, the way he mishandled this crisis, refused to accept this, the severity of the threat at the beginning. But then also the anger that there is that Tories are making huge profits out of this. You know, contracts handed to their family members and friends. And there were people really, you know, they'd been through everything over the last year. They'd been through hell, to be honest, many of them. And they were really angry that having all that sacrifice, and remember, thousand, a thousand health workers have died during the pandemic. All that sacrifices that they've made, and then they look to the side and there you have these Tories lining their pockets. Um, it's exploiting the crisis for profit so yeah i want i want Keir to be angry i want him to be bloody angry actually i think we all should be bloody angry and you need to express that 
you need to demonstrate to people you too like them have these strong emotions and that we need to ex use that emotion to uh, isolate the Tories and expose them. I still think that the NHS, if they, there's no wave of threat of privatisation, is the issue actually that could destroy the Tories. And I think it's the one that they're the most vulnerable on because it's such an act of betrayal of all those people who sacrificed so much of the last year. And, and it is another exemplification about all they're interested in is profit. They're not interested in people. So it's I want I want every, I want Keir, but I want every the whole Labour Party should be really a surge of real anger about what these Tories are doing. And every time we speak about them, we've got to get get that across. And I, this level of corruption, we cannot let it be normalised. This is not the way a society should operate. This is not the way our society should operate. After you know, over years and years and years and generations of campaigning to establish, a, you know, the, the form of democracy that we've got at the moment, and then to see it being abused in a way which is simply for the profit of a ruling elite, we can't allow that to take place. So that's why I feel, yeah, we've got to be angry. And I, I said, you know, Kia at manoeuvring Boris Johnson at um, parliamentary questions each week. Well, great, it's entertaining, that's good, that's part of the job, etc. But, you know, um, the the best performer I've ever seen at Prime Minister's Questions was William Hay. He was just clever, um, knew which, where to, you know, where the vulnerabilities were and what, what wound to press, that sort of thing, and uh, extremely eloquent. But it was, you know, it was rubbish in terms of winning elections. People thought he was a joke once he got outside of Parliament. And so you, it, it's not, you can't just win at Prime Minister's questions and think that's going to ride you into government. It isn't. It's got to be, people go, people feel emotions and therefore they want to know that you've got those same emotions and you're basing it on the reality of what people face. Just a couple of other things, because it is, it is a Sunday and I'm sure you've got, many, many things to be doing. But Labour has actually announced the policy, which is quite interesting because there, there has been a dearth of policies, uh, which is uh, a bi-British economic plan to ensure that more public contracts go to UK companies. And actually this, as you noted today on Twitter, was a policy actually was unveiled under Jamie Corbyn's leadership when you were shadow chancellor. It was actually condemned at the time by lots of the people who currently very passionately uh, support the Labour leadership. Corbyn is going full Trump, said one self-described centrist. Corbyn is no better than Farage, said another. This is Red UKIP, said another. Uh, um, Nicola Sturgeon compared Jeremy Corbyn to Donald Trump. I mean, I could go on. What do, I mean, is this promising? Because at the moment, it's a case of, it's like in... Uh, you know, Charles yeah. Dickens, when he goes, please, please, sir, can I have some more? Just a little scrap of a policy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, is this, yeah just t t tell me your thoughts on that. Okay. Let me go back to the article on Friday, because what I said was, is that, um, one, God save social manger. Secondly, we need a vision of the society that we want, but it's the core of that vision has got to be, well, it's the economy, stupid. And what's the key element of where we're coming from as the party of Labour? It is ensuring that actually there's a recognition in society of who creates the wealth, and it's the workers. Therefore, if the workers create the wealth, 
they should have a fair share in that on that wealth. And how do you do that? You ensure that they have proper trade union rights. You make sure that you have public ownership, a section of your economy. You develop cooperation. You have workers on boards, all of that. And so we thought when when Jeremy did that speech, uh, sorry, the third element also I said in that in, on Friday was the third element is that we've got to recognise that as we come out of the crisis. We're into the next crisis, and that is the, the existential threat of climate change. So everything that we do has got to be mobilized around tackling that threat. So in 2018, when Jeremy did that speech, what it was all about really was how do we use the 200 billion that the government has, uses taxpayers' money, to put out to the private sector for contracts? Well, some of that would be brought back in-house. It would be publicly owned, but directly um, directly made services that, that were under public ownership themselves, of course, through nationalization. But others, where we were spending that money, what we wanted to do is shift the whole economic agenda. So, for example, you'd make sure whoever got a contract had a real, paid a real living wage, recognized trade unions, had workers on boards, and made sure as well that all their policies were linked to tackling climate change. So in that way, it was an intervention about how we do it. It wasn't a matter of just British companies, but what we wanted to do is recognise actually the best way of ensuring that we could control that, that funding was if we invested it back into our own communities. It was a bit like community wealth building, but on a national scale, because that's what we were encouraging at the local level. Actually, on that scale, 200 billion is a fair whack in which you can then almost transform the climate of certain sectors of industry. And we were particularly looking at some of the traditional industries like steel, et cetera. So for example, if something was being built, well, Jeremy gave the good example, HS2 or any ships or whatever we were building or trains in particular, and we built them in this country, we used British steel. We, so in other words, you were generating jobs as well. It wasn't going back to Gordon Brown's, you know, British jobs for British workers, that, a racist strategy like that, quite the reverse because it didn't matter. We were trying to ensure that we controlled that expenditure so that it was used in such a way, as I said, to benefit working people and to make sure the people who created the wealth had a greater share of that wealth. Now, something similar has been announced this morning, but was not part of an overall industrial strategy or that concept of actually we are the party of labour. Therefore, our task is to make sure that labour that creates the wealth ensures gains a fair share of that wealth. And that, you need to set it in that sort of context, really. Finally, um, there are people who are powerful and influential within the Labour leadership who want to wage an all-out factional war against the left. Uh, many of them don't think Keir Starmer is ever going to be prime minister, and they are going to keep him there until they can change, for example, the leadership rules, which determine which MPs can make it on a ballot for a wider electorate to vote on. And I say that because one of the ideas might be to revert to the electoral college where MPs have the whip hand in terms of deciding who is leader. Um, and also other assaults against party democracy, uh, which will be an attempt to put the left in what Peter Mandelson, who it is believed was having a formal role. I spoke to people after the Hartlepool by-election who, who shadowed cabinet ministers who were given lines they rejected as crap. Uh, they were told they were signed off by Peter Mandelson. I also know that he was recruiting or trying to recruit special advisors 
for shadow ministers who were never appointed in the end, but from the right of the party, because a reshuffle was intended. That wouldn't just clear out people who remain on the left, like Andy McDonald, who's a very good shadow uh, employment secretary of state, but even people like Jonathan Ashworth, Lisa Nandy, people like that were going to be removed in, in favour of really hardcore Blairite types. What do you think? I mean, isn't it just the case that under this leadership, whether or not Keir Starmer is naive about internal politics because he came into this thinking he wasn't factional and has ended up being used by the most ultra-factional ice pickers in the Labour Party, uh, isn't it just going to be the case that there is just going to be an all-out war against the left and the left, as things stand, is going to get smashed within the Labour Party? And if so, what is the left supposed to do about it? Let's go through the option. Let's go through the options um, because it, the two battlegrounds that we've got—I don't like all these military illusions—but look, the two terrains of struggle, whichever way you want to describe it, really, are both in terms of the policy program, and the second is about yes, the institutional arrangements of the Labour Party, and that includes yeah, selection of the re leader, um, selection of. MPs. It also includes the rights of constituency parties as well, by the way, uh, and the role of regional officers, the role of the bureaucracy, all of those issues. So they're the two terrains, if you like, in which we'll, ha we'll have to have a debate and, if necessary, a bit of a, a struggle over them. Yeah. Um, I've heard that Peter Mandelson has come out from, from his, his, his cave, that, uh, you know, and is um, trying to exercise influence or whatever. And you can see his fingerprints on all of this. So what are the options for the right? Um, the, the right, and I'm talking about the sort of Mandelsonian Blair, ultra Blair out right, they leave Keir in place and they seek to influence him as much as possible and get their way that way. That's the first thing. The second is they leave him in place until they get some of these in place and then they dump him. Or it's the Blairite option, which is lose the next election, collapse the Labour Party and develop another formation like SDP or something, something like that. They'll be I'm sure they'll be they'll be plotting like that and different scenarios, etc. So how do we respond? Well, you recognize that they're always going to be doing that. <laughs> there was rows from the beginning. The first, you know, there were rows from the first time Keir Hardy chaired the meeting to form the ILP. You know, they'll always the right will always plot like that. So what do we do as the left? We do exactly what we've always done. We organize. And the way that we organize is that we organize to make sure that we bring forward all the brilliant ideas. So the 2017-19 manifestos were great, but we've got to move on. Got to be much more radical. So we win. We hegemonize the, the ideological debate. That's the first thing. The second thing in terms of the organizational struggle, we organize ourselves. We're now in a situation where we're losing members, a large number of members, because they're disillusioned. We lost the election. They've seen what Keir has been doing recently, and they've become disillusioned. We've got to hold on to what we've got and start bringing those people back and saying, if you're serious about socialism in this country, the Labour Party is still the only vehicle to achieve that. And if you're serious about that, you've got to get back into the Labour Party to help us in this coming period. of I'll put it as a debate. Um, let's put it that uh, as soft as that, if you like. They've got to come back in this to enable us to win vote after vote in constituencies and at Labour Party conference and to prevent stitch-ups that then change the, the rules, etc. In addition to that, we've got to make sure we mobilise the affiliated unions as well. And the good thing about that 
is actually I'm hoping that, that that Steve Turner now gets elected General Secretary Unite. We've got to work towards that. I'm hoping now that we now have a left NEC on the, on Unison. That Unison itself will reflect the views of its members politically, which is ensuring that we have a. A, a radical Labour Party that will tackle issues like the privatisation and outsourcing the jobs, like the pay freezes being inflicted upon Unison members. So I think we've still got the strength amongst the rank and file and amongst our affiliates to fend off these, I think, ludicrous schemes by the extreme right within our party. And that enables us then to talk about more democratization of our party. I'd like to see the general secretary elected, for example. I'd like to see regional secretaries elected. I'd like to make sure that we have a almost like a bill of rights for our constituency parties so they're able to debate what they like. They're able to ensure they have free and fair elections without regional office interference, all of those matters. We've got to go on the front foot of all, about all of this because actually I think we can we can win as a, as a result of that. The other thing I just say to the right, you know, be careful what you wish for. Just be careful because whatever system they put in place, we've always been able to, well, use it in such a way that we win because our ideas are the ideas of the future. You can't hold back progress. And that's what we stand. I don't mean the political organization progress. I mean the development of ideas that are progressive and the development of organization that, that is progressive. You can't hold that back. We reflect what's happening in the real world. We reflect what people in our communities are saying to us about the sort of changes that they need and want. The issue to that now is also to say to them, it's the point that many people have made, and I think Ali has made it to me a few times really, just take it like in relation to the Muslim community, but in relation to the whole of the community. People aren't interested in these internal factional fights. For God's sake, if you're going to spend your time on that, you won't just throw away the next election. You'll throw away all elections to come. What they want to see the Labour Party doing is campaigning and as a united force on the issues that confront them. There can't be any bigger issue to mobilise around now as well than the existential threat of climate change. We've got to wake up for that. So every every time, every minute, every meeting we spend on internal faction fighting, we're, we're contributing to the catastrophe of climate change because we're not focusing our minds on that. So I think, no, I'm optimistic we can fend all that stuff off and um, Peter Mandelson can go off and have another cruise on one of the yachts of his friendly billionaires that, that he does every now and again. Sorry. <laughs> That's funny. Um, John, that was absolutely brilliant. And I think what that, the point you just made towards the end as well, I do think it's interesting. The left was often accused of they only they're only interested in factional control of the Labour Party. They don't have a vision for the country. And I do think that sums up that Labour right faction now more than ever, because what's been interesting in the last few years is they've had ample time to develop a policy vision and poly, policy perspectives. <laughs> Tom Watson set up this, I think it was, what was it called, Future Britain Group? Yeah. Didn't go with any policies, came up with nothing. And I do think that what's interesting is, you know, the void we can certainly see from the Labour leadership is because that yeah. faction didn't lay the foundations for any modern social democratic alternative to the Tories. But I, I, if you look at the, one of our ambitions over the last number of years was to um, establish the movement in a way which was, on the ground, so community organization was key to us, um, was ensuring that um, the campaigns that we were waging in the party were linked to campaigns external, so part of a wider social movement, but also that those campaigns fed the ideas 
into think tanks. We wanted an architecture of think tanks. That's what we've got them on, an architecture of their think tanks. We haven't had for quite a while. But what we wanted to do is connect those think tanks to the struggles themselves. So they nourished each other in this sort of symbiotic relationship. We've got that now. So we're bubbling with ideas. The movements are taking place. The Labour Party has got to reconnect with those movements. You know, we should be part and part, not we shouldn't we should be humble and not uh, think arrogantly we can lead this we've got to be part of the black lives movement extinction rebellion the women's movement that's campaigning against the misogyny at the moment all of those issues the disability movement we've got to be part of them to help resource them support them and nurture them when they're in the in in their embryonic forms as well and in that way we can build confidence back in that we become almost the political arm of those movements when it comes into parliamentary representation. That's the exciting future that I see. The other thing as well, remember the new generation that's coming through at the moment, it's just unbelievable. It's just fantastic, you know? My worry is that they're not orientating themselves towards the Labour Party. If we can transform the Labour Party in its attitude to those movements, I think those young people will come alongside us and then many of them will, will join or rejoin. So I'm optimistic about the future, but I don't underestimate the, um, the um, friendly debate and comradely debates that we'll have like with people like Comrade Mandelson. <laughs> Comrade Mandelson, that's certainly one way of putting it, John. Uh, he won't write that one, will he? <laughs> he's, he's, it's, I mean, he did used to be in the Young Communist League, which I suspect is the last time he used uh, Comrade with such wild abandon. Uh, John, well, that was he great. He has a few Stalinist tendencies, I'll go into that. Yeah. certainly does. He would certainly like to ice-pick both of us, metaphorically, to avoid a exchange of lawyers' letters. Uh, cheers, John. That was absolutely brilliant. Really appreciate when you come on. And the comments have been overwhelmingly just very, very relieved, actually, partly, because I think people feel they need a bit of leadership right now. There's a bit of a, a lack of leadership, and I think you've just offered it. So thank you. Uh, All the Take care. Take care, John. Brilliant stuff. We covered a massive, massive range there. I, I hope you'll agree. Whether it be the aftermath of the Battle and Spend by-election, the huge disillusionment amongst British Muslims. That is a conversation we should be having in mainstream media outlets. Muslims represent over 3 million people in this country. It's a huge section of the national community. And the fact there is this huge grievances in a minority where over half are estimated to live in poverty, who face all forms, all various forms of systemic racism, constantly demonised by the media, and even now feel rejected by the Labour Party that many of them saw as their natural home. That's a conversation we should be having at, in the national media outlets, but unfortunately it does fall to outlets like this one to platform the voices that we should all be listening to. Before we wrap up, I mean, I do want to just, I sometimes use this, I know, to get things off my chest beef, if you will. And what I think is interesting is for a very long time, we've heard a lot rightly about how Boris Johnson lies, which he does. He's an abject liar, uh, about how misinformation lies from Boris Johnson and his stooges corrupts democracy. That's what they say. And that's true. What I find interesting, and I'm just using myself here as a case study, is in Batley and Spent, I repeatedly tweeted out, used Facebook to say, vote for Kim Leadbeater if you live in Batley and Spen. I would vote for Kim Leadbeater. But I mean, I literally tweeted it over and over again, posted it on Facebook. In the last few days or two days, I've been inundated, including by Labour MPs, claiming falsely 
Here's Neil Coyle. He likes his tired and emotional tweets. Neil Coyle, who is the MP uh, for Bermondsey in Old Southwark. I went and campaigned for him myself back in 2017, uh, despite the fact I have very strong political disagreements with him, to say the least. But because in 1983, the SDP alliance waged a homophobic campaign against Peter Thatchell. And my view was, as a gay person, the Lib Dems are not taking that seat back. I campaigned for him. He asked me to. I got over 150 people to campaign for him. So then he tweets when I posted out my views on George Galloway. I did a video, which I called George Galloway. I said, he's not our friend. He should be treated as an enemy. He's in league with profound reactionaries. That's what I think. Uh, he tweeted, all the integrity of Brooks Newmark's pyjamas. Brooks Newmark is like an obscure Tory MP who had a sex scandal years ago. Anyway, when Labour needed Owen, he was lauding Tory voter Galloway. The brochures thought we needed them today, proved otherwise. We won despite their disgusting campaign trying to help the Conservatives. Now, there's no evidence of that whatsoever because no evidence exists. I repeatedly condemned George Galloway. I blocked him on Twitter six years ago. Uh, George Galloway and I despise each other. Uh, I mean, he did a whole video about how loathsome I was, which I put on last week, which is very amusing. Um, and I regard him as a reactionary, not least on social issues. Yet these so-called moderates and liberals who talk about misinformation and how that corrupts British politics have no problem whatsoever about lying about their opponents on the left. As far as they're concerned, the left's fair game. You just make anything up. It doesn't matter that you've got a columnist who backed the Labour candidate, made that clear over and over again. Because they took seriously Muslim disillusionment of Batley and Spen, because they look at the statistics of Labour's current polling trajectory and its by-elections and has concluded based on that Labour is heading for a terrible election defeat worse than 2019 and because people like myself have said where's the vision Labour need to offer a vision otherwise people aren't going to support them these people have decided that we are fair game we can be described announced in whatever terms that they see fit and I do think it's also interesting because for a long time the left Corbynism or whatever you want to call it was described as a cult that's how it was described. And I would say you always do in every political movement have, I would say, over-enthusiastic members who are online, who are very online. That's always true. But at least they were invested in a political project with a vision. That's why people clung on to that often, because they felt finally there was the radical policies that could cure the injustices in the country. And yet online now, the people who are cheerleading often Keir Starmer, and I'm not saying they're representative of Keir Starmer supporters. Some of my best friends are Claxon uh, Starmer supporters. Um, it's the fact that they are behaving, this section, this chunk, in the most increasingly abusive and vicious way. Like, I mean, my, I look sometimes through my Twitter timeline at the, you know, I'm used to get, I'm tiny violin, the abuse that I get. But a lot of it, I just look, I read through it and I'm like, is that a far-right activist? Because of the abusive extreme terminology, click on it. It's like Starmer for PM. Now, under Corbyn's time, when that happened, there was front page news about online abuse by Corbyn supporters. It does turn out different rules apply, doesn't it? I mean, maybe I'm barking at thunder. What's the point, you might think? The world is unjust. But it is very striking that as things have gone badly and the leadership did have an easy ride, easy ride for the media and the vast overwhelming support of the Parliamentary Labour Party, 
that section have got more and more angry and vicious. And some of the people, I'm currently, some of them, there's a, I'm currently in an online storm with Ash Sarkar because we went to the pub and watched the England match, took a picture of it. And for some inexplicable reason, both far-right extremists and the self-styled moderates are both piling on us with loads of abuse over it. That wasn't about me. It was a case study. That's the point I was going to make. Anyway, we move. Uh, we've got loads of stuff coming up in the, in the next week. Um, if you want us to do more of these documentaries, got loads of documentaries planned. Uh, patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84, three quid a month or whatever you can spare. That allows us to employ people to make those documentaries to a very high standard, which I hope you'd agree. I think the Battling Spen and Hartlepool documentaries were the best documentaries, the best videos on the by-elections produced by anyone. That is extremely arrogant. But bear in mind, the videographer does the hard graph, thanks to you. If you're listening on the podcast, do you leave us a five-star review? Just five stars is great, thanks. Uh, if you believe it, uh, and a review and subscribe. Uh, do spread the word. Uh, I, this week, normally there is a very capable producer doing this. They're currently on a plate uh, somewhere for work. So I, I've had to do this. So it's been a bit shaky and I'm hungover because of yesterday, but the guests have been brilliant and we're really lucky to always have these fantastic guests. So thank you so, so much. Uh, we really do appreciate your support as ever. I hope you have a great week. We, as I've said, loads of interviews, videos, documentaries to come, so do subscribe. Lots of love, everyone, and I will see you live 12 o'clock on Sunday, uh, and I will speak to you all very soon. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.